So we're doing something a little different today that I thought I would let you in on. Uh, I've taken the message and broken it into two sections, mainly because halfway through, I want us all to think about it and ponder where we are for a moment before we move into the second half. And so the team's going to stay on stage with us here for the first part, then they'll lead us in some more times of worship singing, and then I'll come back up later for the second half of the message. Uh, We are in the middle of this series called Walls into Windows, Uh, the idea of trying to take relationships from a place where there feels like there's a wall there separating something, keeping us away from one another and move it to a place where we can see each other, we can reach each other, we can connect and contact. That's walls to windows. Pray with me and we'll get started. Lord, uh, my hope and prayer today is that we see and hear and sense uh, the truths of things from Scripture in a way um, that is encouraging but also challenging to us. A lot of the folks in this room, Lord, have been in church or around church or studied the Bible or read the Bible a a large portion of their life. And when that happens, Lord, there's so many great things, but some of the downsides are is that we learn to see a passage only one way and we might miss what's also there. And so today, Lord, let's look for what's also there. Help us to see things that are there that might go beyond what we've seen in the past. We trust you with this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. In Matthew chapter 18, which is this entire series, in Matthew chapter 18, we start with an extremely, like a very, very, very recognizable uh, group of, of passages of Scripture. And it starts with Jesus calling what the most translations refer to as children into the presence of the disciples. The disciples are keeping them away, and he says, no, 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 you don't understand. These, these little ones, is what he refers to them as, these little ones are extremely valuable. And so last week, we dealt with that particular part of the passage, and we learned a couple things. We learned that greatness is humility, that, that the greater that we're going to be in life, the more uh, successful your faith can be, has to deal with how you handle humility in your life. And so this is a really, really important factor for us as we look through today. We also learned that the way you have to deal with this humility factor is you have to ask the questions, how great is God and how great am I? You know, like, like, are these wonderful things happening because God is great or all these wonderful things happening because I am great, you know, and, and it's not to take the human element completely out of anything, but at the same time to recognize that all miraculous, wonderful, amazing things are things that ultimately come from the Lord. Okay. We learned a Greek word last week, uh, for whatever reason, more so than normal, uh, Greek words in this particular chapter are really, really important. We're going to pick up on a few things. And this is where uh, strafo, that's the, the, the like responding like a child. Uh, some of you may have seen this last week. Uh, I don't know what in the world uh, convinced me to do this. It's now on video. I can't take it back. I can't do anything away. But I spun around in circles on stage, like responding strafo the way like a child. Uh, Todd, in editing the video, even cut it into a short and sent it to me so I could put it on TikTok, which I have not yet done. <laughs> So uh, 
Uh, who knows? Who knows? Uh, the idea really is this emotional response of getting over ourselves and, and loving God with such a great childlike response that, that, we, might, that we might even feel um, undignified or, or not adult-like or not grown up in the sense that we are loving God with this overwhelming emotion, just like a child might run to the front door and grab daddy's leg when he gets home because they're so overwhelmed uh, by the presence of their dad. So that's kind of where we were last week. Now, uh, we're going to pay attention to a few things. The idea of the little ones, we're going to deal with what that is today. And we're going to notice that for the rest of this passage, Jesus is saying things that ultimately get preached by themselves. Like, pull these three verses out and preach that sermon. That happens most of the time, but they are concluded and included together in this chapter because as we're going to see, they all are related. All of these thoughts and the stream of thought through this as it's being written are important that we see them together. So that's my goal for the day. Uh, the, the conviction of our church that we're kind of highlighting today is that light that you might see there. The idea that we want to make sure that the pathways to God are always well lit for the person or the people who need them. In other words, this is the same thing as saying, if a child needs to cross the road, we're going to hold their hand and make sure that they get across all the way. If someone is in the midst of the dark and they need to find their way where they're going, we're going to turn the lights on for them to try and help them see. I don't know if you've ever done this. It happened to me last week. Uh, I was, it was probably three or four in the morning. I woke up, I needed to use the restroom. So me being so um, caring and not wanting to wake my wife, I decided I could get there without turning on any light or anything else. And so I very softly just walked across the carpet and it probably looked something like this, right? It's pitch black, like pitch black in our, in our bedroom at night. I, I find a shift robe, a big piece of furniture that has mirrors on the front. I find it. Okay, in my mind, I know that the bathroom is there if, if the shift robe is here. And so I walk to the side. I get to the door. Our bathroom door in our bedroom is always opened, except for this moment. And apparently, I was walking forehead first. Bam! On the back of our door hangs one of those ironing boards that, that, that then sounded like someone threw a slinky across the room. Just... And I stand there dead silent hoping she did not wake up. She's not always nice when you wake her up in the middle of the night. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, Jim. No, no. So I, I find the doorknob, I get it open, I sneak in, I close it behind me, twisting the doorknob ever so softly to make sure that when it closes, it doesn't make a latching sound. I then take two steps. I don't know why I thought I couldn't turn the light on in the bathroom. I don't know why I didn't think I could do that. I, 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 for whatever reason, I'm still being very courteous, wanting to make sure that I don't wake her up. And all of a sudden, I realize, I think I might have fallen back asleep. And I, and I like do this with my eyes, and I, I realize, I don't know which way is north now. Like, I have no idea. I'm in the middle of the bathroom, and I have no idea where anything is. And so in some way, and I, like, let's just say timing is becoming more urgent. 
you know? <laughs> no, I did not pee on the floor in our bathroom. I did find my way. But I felt very lost for just a moment. Very, very lost for just a moment. I want you to understand how similar that feels to people who have not been around faith, not been around the gospel, not been taught about Jesus, or even if they have, but they've been taught it in a way that's different than our church or that's different from what you're experiencing as a believer. And when they find their way into some sort of a beginning connection with the Lord, sometimes it feels like you're feeling your way through a dark room and it's hard and you don't know the next steps to take and you don't know what anyone expects of you and you don't know what God wants from you. And we get to be the church, as we're going to learn as we read this passage today, that holds the child's hand as they walk across the street or that turns the light on in the dark so that people can see. That makes sense? Kind of tracking with where I think this passage is going. All right, well then let's read. Let's read. We are down in verse 6. We've just been talking about the children. And now Jesus is going to tell you what happens if you don't handle the children well. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying here, the little ones, okay? He says, but whoever causes, that's an important verb, whoever causes one of these little ones, again, he doesn't really say child. This is an important word for us. We'll look at it in a second. Uh, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the deepest of seas. Okay, wow, that's kind of like, if someone said that, in a, you're in a meeting, you're like, you're in a meeting, you're discussing a conflict, and someone stood up and goes, if you don't vote for the candidate I want you to vote for, I think we should tie a millstone around your neck and drown you in the deepest of seas. Everybody would go, whoa. Well, cal calm down a little bit, buddy. That's, that's pretty strong, what you just said. But Jesus says something that strong. And then he uses a word in the New Testament that's an important word for us to know. He uses the word that's translated woe, like bad things coming, okay? Woe to the world for, temptation, for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So let's break that down a little bit. This is a millstone in first century Judaism. Millstone was used in making, in making uh, bread and making wheat and other things that you needed to be broken down into small pieces and so it would be rolled around on top of things. It weighed hundreds of pounds. So Jesus was not using a small little metaphor about what should happen to the person. And, you know, and not to mention, he wasn't being literal. It was being metaphorical. But in saying this metaphor, he said it would be better, as far as God's concerned, it'd be better for you to have that thing tied around your neck. And get this, I'm, I'm not so sure if the visual is tied around your neck or if your neck is just shoved through the hole. Right? It's, that, it's that big of a stone, okay? So let, let's look specifically at two words. Uh, the, the word for little one is micros. You have no problem coming up with what English and Latin words come from micros, right? That's where we get micro. It just means small, okay? So you guys have heard micro in a million different ways, right? A, a microbiologist is different from a biologist in that a biologist is someone who studies living things. A microbiologist is someone who studies very little living things, right? Small minuscule living things. Jesus is referring to the micros, not just as literal children, 
But in their day in society, there are those that were known as the Micros. They were the lowly. They were those who, who had no dignity in the society. They were the those who have been humbled, not in a good Christian way of having a humbled spirit, but I'm talking about those who've had their back broken, their knees bent, and have been told and required to bow to the society around them. We're talking about those who were on the fringe of society, those who are forgotten by everyone else. And so although he's most likely pointing to actual literal children in the story, the visual is even bigger than that in that he's helping us remember that we are to make sure that we do not cause those who are lowly, humbled, and, and, and in some way lacking dignity, as children were in their society, uh, we're told not to cause them to sin. But the word's not actually sin. Sin is probably a good translation there. But, but the word is uh, scandalizo, another one that you probably don't have to think much about wh- what English word comes from scandalizo. It's obviously the word scandal. Uh, but here it's translated stumble. Like, like we don't want them, and that's why some of the Bible translations that you read say one of these little ones to stumble. Uh, that, that's, that's a very, very literal use of the word. But it doesn't mean just fall down. It means to be trapped by something, to be ensnared, to be caught, uh, to be hindered, to where your forward progress is being limited by the scandalizo. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there are those in your life, disciples and now us, there are those in your life who have less power than you. They have, they have less influence than you. They have less authority than you. They have less dignity. They may be seen in society or in family or in the church as less than in the same way that maybe an eight-year-old would not go into a board meeting and start talking about how to run the business. People might go, no, the eight-year-old needs to stay in the nursery. We have a board meeting to attain to here. We got to pull this off. This is, this is for grown folk. We got to do that. He's saying that, that we need to make sure in our world, in our life, that when those who in society might see themselves or literally be in some way more limited than we are, we need to make sure that the things we do, the actions we take, the choices we make, do not actually slow down their progress. Do not cause them to stumble. In fact, as we read the rest of this chapter, if you look at it with those eyes, recognizing that this is what Jesus is talking about, Jesus is talking about his followers being helpful to other people, not hurtful. Being being a a catalyst to helping things move forward in a great way versus being a hindrance. This is really, really important for us. And can I get super practical? Because I think we do it and have no idea that we're doing it all the time. I think when you really get fascinated with the idea of helping someone else take forward steps, we realize how often we do things that actually stand in their way or keep them from being able to, or at least lack the the opportunity to encourage them to do those things. Does that make sense? Like when someone who is maybe younger than you or less educated than you or has less experience than you shows interest in trying to do something that you are normally responsible for. Like that you get to do that. Like you're the one who does that. 
People look at you and go, yep, you're the one who does that. That's the person who does that thing, that valuable, important thing. You're the one who does that. And you find value in it. And you are encouraged by doing it. And then that person, this younger person that's less educated, less experienced, less proven, says, hey, I want to help with that. It's really easy for us to go, yeah, you know, like we may not say this out loud because we're not rude, but like come back when you can do it as good as me. I got this, you know. But what we should be doing is saying, hey, let's come alongside each other. I want to help you. I, wanna, I, I think it's awesome that you want to do whatever this is. I want to help you take steps forward. And eventually, and this is hard for those of us, especially, you know, that, that are getting a little older. And I know in my own life, I find this. It's hard to start viewing the success of those younger than me that I have helped and encouraged and coached and taught and gotten out of the way of. When I start seeing their success, here's the challenge. The challenge is not feeling replaced, but being encouraged and realizing that their success is your success. If you are helping them take steps forward and stepping back so that now some of the spotlight, limelight, celebration moment, finish line is something they're getting to experience and not just, not just they're getting to see you get it. Does that make sense? I think this is applicable in parenting. It's applicable in marriage. It's applicable in a lot of different things. We are a people who are supposed to make sure that we're not causing someone else's progress to be hindered or to stumble. And it gets really interesting as we keep looking forward here as to what's happening in this passage. So as a result of that, as a result of that, like, okay, next step. You don't want to cause somebody else to be hindered or to stumble. Jesus then says, okay, so if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, for those of you who love the English language and figures of speech, hopefully you're going to recognize really quickly that this is something that we call hyperbole. Hyperbole means like saying something way over the top, not intended to be taken literally for the point of making a really serious. Okay, so when, when you got in trouble and you told your mom that you got in trouble and, and she said, why did you do that? And you go, well, Johnny said it would be fun. And she goes, you already know what I'm gonna say. If Johnny told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? That's hyperbole. Mom is not going, well, you and Johnny go walk out to the bridge. You know, like, I want to see this happen. Big stuff. Like, no, she doesn't want you to actually jump off a bridge. She's just using hyperbole to try to help you think through the logic of your bad choices. And that's what Jesus is doing here. If your right hand causes, if your foot causes, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Remember, he just said that those who are causing the younger ones or the lowly ones to be hindered, that they should be thrown into the lake, like he's already said that. So he's bringing this out again. He uses another example. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Here's what you need to know. You need to know that in their society... There was a group of people who were constantly deemed as lowly. Children, by the way, were almost automatically put in this category from the beginning. I don't even want to get into the grossness and the horrible things that happened in the Roman world. 
uh, to people groups like the Jews who were not the, the winners, you know, who were, who were in some way overseen or even enslaved by their, their captors in that society. But let's just say that the lowly had no rights at all. Like no human rights. Like, like I'm going to say it this way. Like your dog in Western Kentucky has more rights than the lowly had in their society. Okay? You can actually get arrested for doing something bad to your dog. I'm not knocking that. That's a, that's a good thing. In the, okay, in the right situation. But you could not be arrested for doing something horrible to the lowly in the Roman culture. Not if you were a Roman citizen. And so what we need to understand is Jesus is saying something that is amazingly political here. Like over-the-top political. He's telling the, the men who are strong and are seen as leaders and have lots of influence, he's telling them the very cautious approach they need to take in how they use that authority and that control that they have in the world as to how it applies to those who are lowly compared to them, be it children or those in other types of struggled societies. He says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, he keeps using the phrase micron, micron, over and over, to the ones who were seen as low. For I tell you that in heaven, the, the angels always see the, their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. In other words, God is paying attention to them. God is paying attention to their lives, to the things they face, to the struggles that go into them, and to those who hinder them. God's paying attention. So, first kind of thought of the day is that sin limits how helpful we can be to those around us who need our support to follow Jesus. So see, let's, let's, let's think about this for a second. I know it's really, really easy to think about sin just as an individualistic thing. Like, like oh no, I sinned. That puts some sort of distance between me and my walk with God. I'm not sure I understand that exactly, but God told me it's bad. I shouldn't do it. God, I'm sorry. I apologize. God says you're forgiven, and now I get to move forward. But it's so hard to think about not only do I need to take my sin to God and ask God to forgive me, and then, by the way, in another passage of Scripture, we're told in James that we take our sin to our brothers and sisters in Christ, confess it to them so that they can help us find healing from it. But in this particular point, we're being asked to think about how our choices affect other people. We're being asked to think about how our sin hinders others. You have to kind of get into the mind of the 12 disciples who were hearing this lesson. What had been normative to them? The way that they had normally talked to children. The way that they had normally most likely talked to women. The way that they had normally talked to anyone whose state in society was less than theirs. <coughs> Jesus is completely changing their mind about how to think about how your actions affect other people. And it's important for us as a church. So then, from that same perspective, he goes into one more step. Another extremely popular, extremely well-known passage of Scripture that gets preached on and written on church signs all the time. He says, what do you think? 
If a man has a hundred sheep, you guys know this story most likely, right? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Did I just read that right? Did, did, did he just say that God's joy from the restoration of, of one lost soul or the restoration of one lowly person who's distant and far from him, did he just say that in some way his joy is greater when that person comes to faith, comes to him, walks with him, and finds that freedom in Christ than he is for the 99 who were never affected by this? I think that's what he's saying. Now, that could be overstated. I think that could be overstated. Sometimes it does get overstated in our society. But once again, read in the context of what's happening in Matthew 18, Jesus is looking at the 12 disciples, many of whom have been very devout Jewish men their entire lives, and he's saying to them, do you understand that God in heaven gets even more excited when someone who currently you might not have much value for in your mind when that person is changed by the power of God, that is in some way, I don't want to humanize God too much, but that in some way brings great joy to him. More so than religious people being effectively religious. God's joy from the restoration of one lost soul is in some way greater than his joy for the 99. This is what I want us to ponder. This is where I'd like to take a break, a moment, and, and worship the Lord, sing to him, and just think about how we see ourselves in relation to Christ and how we see our role in relation to those who maybe have not yet met Christ or those who are struggling or hurting or in some way in need of our support and encouragement. Jumping to a different passage of scripture, uh, in John 21, toward the, the end of the book of John. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected. The disciples have gone back to fishing. This is now, we previously talked about something that Jesus said to them fairly early in their walk with him. This is now something that's happening uh, quite some time later. They've gone back to fishing. If you remember, Simon Peter uh, had a bad moment, you know, right before the crucifixion, when on three different occasions, he was asked by someone Interestingly enough, oftentimes a lowly person, a, a child, ask him, just, just keep in mind what we're thinking about here. Uh, and even in that situation, <coughs> Simon Peter denied that Jesus was the Christ to a child. Think about that. Now Jesus has been resurrected, but they've not spent time with him much yet. And Jesus shows up where they're fishing and they end up in an ensuing conversation between Jesus and Simon Peter. It's often thought of as the reinstatement of Peter. Some things are gonna happen three times here. I often thought, and I think it's a good thought, that this is a three times reminding Simon Peter of the three times he denied Christ. But, but not just reminding him of it. This is not God, by the way. Hey, you, you do remember you failed me a bunch, right? Like, you're, I, I, I remember it. <laughs> like, that's not God's angle. He's not coming to say, you, you do remember how much you messed up, right? No, it's not that. 
It's, he's helping them think through, you, you do remember you messed up, but let's talk about the future. Let's see where we go from here. Let's see what's next. We're not spending all of our time in the past. We're thinking about where we're headed next. And that is where we, we see Jesus talking to Simon Peter now, okay? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, he's not saying, do you love me more than you love them, so much as he's saying, do you love me more than you, do you love them more than you love me? That's at least how Simon Peter takes it in the beginning. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. By the way, in the age spectrum, in the world of sheep, what's a lamb? It's a little one, okay? It's a little one. That's, we're still talking about little ones here. Not just children, but, but those who need to be cared for, directed, guided, loved, supported, encouraged. That's what he's saying. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Okay, this is, this is more like the whole flock, right? This is more like, this is, this is not just the little ones, this is others. And he says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was grieved. Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Now, I don't want to read over this, okay? If you've ever battled with guilt, you know what Simon Peter's dealing with here. If you've ever battled with the despair over your own mistakes and the, and the pain that that caused not only someone else and yourself, but the, 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 what that brought to God himself in your disobedience. Simon Peter's taking this hard. And he's wondering what the next step is. Now, keep in mind, Simon Peter is the, is, the, is the reactionary guy. Simon Peter's the guy who, when he got angry at a Roman soldier, pulled his sword out and tried to cut his head off. By the way, I don't think anybody, I don't want you to miss this. He wasn't aiming for the ear, right? Like, that's not really the goal, was never to cut the guy's ear. He was, he was trying to kill the man. This is Simon Peter who punishes the guilty, Simon Peter, who, who brings resolution to the wrong. And now that Simon Peter is having to think through his own guilt, his own trauma, his own struggle, his own failure. And now Jesus has asked him a third time, do you love me? And he's grieved. And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see... Everybody talks about the fact that Jesus says it three times. Jesus says, do you love me? And by the way, Jesus uses different words for love. Uh, I don't know that there's a whole lot to that, but it, it, de it does cover the spectrum of whatever kind of love we're talking about, it's in there. All the different types, brotherly love, godly love, friendly love, all that stuff is in those three words for love. The spectrum has been covered. I think it's really interesting that Simon Peter answers three times. But Simon Peter doesn't use the same word all three times either. He says, Jesus, you know that I love you the first time. 
Second time, Jesus, you know that I love you. That, that word is oida. It's a very generic, simple word. It, perfect translation is K-N-O-W. You know it. It just means an intellectual knowledge. Like, you know, two plus two is four. You know, you know, you know that the sky is up and the grass is down. You know that, right? Like, you, you know that air is lighter than dirt, but heavier than helium. Like, you know that. Like, I just know it. Just, you just do. But the third no, when he says, Jesus, you know that I love you. He uses not oida, but gnosko. It's a famous word. You know, I, I try not to throw a lot of Greek stuff, but the, the, if, if you've got a pastor that likes that, he's going to bring gnosko up pretty often. It's a really important word. It's, it's not intellectual knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. Uh, like, you know what it feels like to fall out of a tree. Bam, right? Uh, the most famous use of it is in the Greek version of the Old Testament when Adam knew Eve. That's why the word's translated knew. And we know that there's more to it than just he knew who she was, right? There's an experiential connection here. When you gnosko someone, when you know them, there's a level of intimacy to the knowledge. It doesn't necessarily mean romantic intimacy, but, but it means a level of connection that's real. That's real. I, uh, you may have seen on Facebook, I, I, I buried my dog this week. Um, and one of the things about, her name was Rumor, one of the things about her that, I would, that made me love her so much is I would tell people, she knows me. Like she, like she just, she just gets me. She, I mean, she's better at knowing how I'm feeling about something or what emotion I'm having than most anybody is. She just knows me. It feels really great to be known like that, doesn't it? Like to be recognized, you know, to be known. Uh, Simon Peter here is not just, get this now, Simon Peter is not just making a statement. He's also asking a question. There's no question mark at the end of the sentence, but Jesus is saying to him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Simon Peter is feeling like, surely you know me. You know me. Simon Peter's hoping for reassurance that Jesus does really know him because Simon Peter's dealing with his own brokenness, right? And he says, feed my sheep. It comes down to a couple of questions for us uh, as we kind of close out the day. And, and the, the first question is the same question that's being asked here is, do you love Jesus? I'm not asking that question to try to like make anybody feel guilty. I, I'm asking that question in the same way that Jesus did. This is great because Jesus asks the most guilty guy at the place if he loved him. And the end goal is that that guy is going to have a role in helping guide and direct the future of the church. Okay, that's, that's the redemptive nature of our God. Is he takes the guy whose record of failure is bigger than everybody else's. And he puts him in a place to be the, one of the primary leaders of the early church. <coughs> but the question is, do you love me? Not, have you done everything right? Not have you always made the best choices, not have you, have you proven something to anybody. The question is, do you love Jesus? And I want you to ask that to yourself, to ponder that question. Do I love Jesus? 
It's a question we really ought to be asking ourselves every day because it's really easy to assume. It's really easy to assume that we do, you know, especially when we start using, you know, uh, human math, like, well, I, I own a Bible, read a Bible. I know some, I know a lot of worship songs. I go to church pretty, you know, pretty often. I, I for the most part, I live morally. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Jesus. I, I'm sure. It, I think, I think, I think I love Jesus. Like, Yeah. So you got to ask that question. Let God ask you that question. Do you love me? But then as you ask it, um, I think from all of Matthew 18 and even here as we see God reinstating Peter, the question is, okay, well, if you love me, then do you love helping people follow me? Do you love helping people follow me? Here's the interesting thing. We see right now in the midst of this story, something that should blow individualistic Christianity out of the water. The idea that it's just me and my Bible and Jesus, and that's all I need. It's just me and Jesus. That's all I need. It's all about me and Jesus. The problem with that is that the primary goal of the person who loves Jesus is that they are now helping other people love Jesus. Like, like that's the primary goal. Like Simon Peter didn't, did, he didn't go, Simon Peter, do you love me? And Simon Peter go, you know I do. And Jesus go, great, keep it that way. Me and you, buddy, high five. It's not like that. It's not just a one-on-one relationship. If you're watching this online, I want you to understand something. I think it's awesome that you're watching this online. I think it's fantastic that you're viewing this online. But when the time is right and when you can and when you're available, I think you should find a local congregation. I would love for it to be Woodlawn. It doesn't have to be. But find a local church, find other believers, connect with people who love Jesus, let them help you, you help them, and all of a sudden we're actually doing the thing that Jesus is telling us to do in following him. It's not an individualistic, all-by-myself thing. It's not. And here's the cool thing. Somebody might say, and it's a fair concern, I have social anxiety. I'm really nervous about crowds. I get that. I feel that more than I ever have in my life, and that's not normally been a problem for me. But guess what? The best healing for social anxiety is real relationship. Someone who you trust, someone who you gnosko. You know them, and they care about you, and they love you, and they're with you. And they're going to walk with you through whatever you're facing that's hard and difficult and trying. Jesus says to Simon Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, walk with them, talk with them, be with them, encourage them. Jesus says in the beginning of Matthew 18, if you mess with one of these little ones that's trying to follow me, you and I have a serious problem. That's what he's saying. Because this matters so much to Jesus. So let's do it. Let's love him and let's get really good at helping other people find him, love him, and, and, and walk with him. Uh, that is for us big picture calling as a church. Would you pray with me? As you close your eyes and you think about this, I want to ask you a question. Um, I don't know that there's always like a one for somebody, like one person you're supposed to go after, like leave the 99 and go get the one. I don't know that there's always one, but I would say there's at least one. Um, And one of the things I think we can do to become better at helping other people follow Jesus is to identify that. Somebody in your life that God wants to use you 
to care for. God wants to use you to take the gospel to them. God wants to use you to show them kindness, to feed that sheep. God wants to use you to help them understand what following Jesus is like and means. God wants to use you to turn the light switch of the church on for them so that their path is well lit. God wants to use you to be the person who's praying for that person, to be the person who's concerned, to be the person who notices them. Maybe there's more than one. Maybe you're having a hard time figuring out which one. I'll give you some hints. If you're a parent, especially of small children, that's one for you right there. God may bring some of their, as they grow older and make friends and have kids over, some of those may be ones for you. If you live in a community, maybe your next door neighbor. If you work in a group of people, maybe a coworker. In your extended family, maybe a cousin, stepbrother, stepmom. Maybe you have a friend, somebody that you've been friends with for a while. But when you honestly, not not judgmentally, but just honestly look at their life, they're not walking with the Lord. They're not being fed as part of the flock of God, so to speak. God can use you to bring them, to bring them in, to light their pathway well. And just as Simon Peter feels that responsibility that because I love Jesus, then I need to feed his sheep. I need to love those who are following him or who need to follow him. Then you have your assignment. You and I, we have our assignment right there. Jesus, we trust you. We celebrate you. We love you. We need you in every way. I pray that you would help us today to embody this with urgency, with passion, with commitment. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to uh, have patience for the day when we get to see many different people who simply started out as one of our ones. And through the ministry of those who love you, you reach that person. We trust you with it, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing and worship with this one song. As we respond, I encourage you to respond. It may be that you need to go to the room in the back and, and simply pray with somebody. It may mean that you need to come and kneel by yourself or with your family or friends right here at the altar up front. This is our opportunity to respond to God. Let's worship him.